Cookbooks are the reason I never have money. I could say the same things about bicycles too, but I clearly have a cookbook addiction. There's nothing better than cracking open a new hardcover and perusing the colorful pages of the latest offering by my favorite chefs to hopefully unlock more secrets or learn another facet about their life. I make myself a cup of coffee and lose myself for countless hours in a world that's been elaborately laid out for me in the carefully written and laboriously edited collection of recipes and memoirs, adorned in vivid, stylized images that look like they can be eaten right off the page. I wrote that little ditty in the hopes that I could convey to you the feelings I get when I get a new cookbook. Though I try to rationalize my buying decision by saying that having yet another cookbook will make me a better cook, I know deep inside that I just love the cool pictures and reading the amazing stories that is purely a guilty pleasure, an itch that needs to be scratched from time to time. There is, however, the rare occasion when I come across a cookbook that speaks to me in such a personal way that it becomes a transformative force. It inspires not only my creativity, but provides guidance and makes me think about my place in this world. Now, as a chef, creativity plays a huge role in my work, but it also walks hand in hand with the sense of purpose that I'm always trying to fulfill. And though I love this sense of adventure that being an aimless cook entails, it makes me feel safe to know that others before me have walked their own journeys, faced their own unique challenges, and enjoyed the rewards of walking the unbeaten path. On today's episode, I want to talk about five cookbooks. Yes, cookbooks that changed my life. I'm Jade Coro, and you're listening to the Aimless Cook Podcast. Now, if you're a chef who does like a lot of markets or pop-ups, then you know what I'm talking about here. We love to create our own opportunities in the food industry, and you probably have a storage space full of folding tables, coolers, cambros, induction, butane burners, whatever else you may need to make up a makeshift food stall at the next night market or pop-up. Or perhaps you have a friend with a space for you to do your thing one or two nights a week. Whatever the case may be, you are a well-seasoned veteran of never using the same kitchen. So nod your head if you've ever done an event and you get to the venue and the place is a disaster zone. Do you remember that scene in the movie Chef where Robert Downey Jr. first gives Jon Favreau the food truck and it's a complete piece of shit? So there was this one time we thought we got this sweet gig. We were uh, taking over a nightclub kitchen for a month and part of that stay included doing the New Year's Eve party. So the first night we get there, we unloaded our stuff and are about to load it in the fridges when we noticed that the fridges weren't plugged in. And on closer inspection, we noticed that the breakers weren't even on as well. Like every surface of every prep table was filthy. The deep fryer hadn't been cleaned in who knows how long. And we learned through the staff that, you know, though the kitchen had all the equipment to make food, it had only been used by the bar staff to cut lime wedges. So, I mean, after a panic deep cleaning session and a couple trips to the roof, we managed to get the kitchen to a condition that was safe enough to prepare and serve food. The fridges were working again and the deep fryer was resurrected, so... We figured it out. The thing about doing events in strange new places is the uncertainty of what you're walking into. Now, you could say that it's the perfect recipe for disaster or the ultimate thrill for someone with a sense of adventure if you're that kind of sadist. I think that deep inside, I'm a bit of both. So whatever the case may be, I can tell you that there's no feeling like coming out of situations like that still standing with a bit more money than what you started with. It's glorious. 
Many people, including the owner-operators of real restaurants, would hardly consider this kind of fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants approach to making money very smart. But that's the beauty of pop-ups, which brings me to the first book I want to talk about. So the first book I want to talk about is called Mission Street Food, Recipes and Ideas from an Improbable Restaurant by Anthony Mint and Karen Leibovitz. Now, if I were to recommend any book to someone who wanted to start their own food business, had no resources, knowledge, or experience to start said business, I'd have to say that this book would be the one you should pick up first. The first impression of this book is that it's a ridiculous approach to opening any kind of venture. The business plan at the beginning of the book sets the stage for something that sounds like the plot of a Netflix comedy series, complete with the disasters, chaos, and plot twists that make even the most seasoned writer wish they wrote that story themselves. Kind of like the bear. That being said, it gives a gritty, honest perspective of the industry that is at the same time deeply entertaining because you ask yourself if the author is serious as you read the stories. So when I started my place, I barely had any money. I had about $2,000 that I'd gotten paid from a startup in New York that wanted to make the next YouTube exclusively for cooking content. Um, As the author recommends in the book, I had started conversations early on with people already in the business. It was from that networking that my friend offered me the opportunity to use a kitchen space at a busy farmer's market to start a business. Now, since everything was already there, I barely had to buy anything other than like the food handling course, permits, small wares. And best of all, the rent was based on a percentage of sales. So by the end of our run, we met another gentleman that happened to be selling his old concession trailer, like a food trailer that he used all over Canada and US to sell hot dogs at powwows. We had this crazy wad of cash that we kept in a freezer bag all summer. And just like that, we had a mobile restaurant. Was it an impulsive move? Yes. Did I research the market, come up with the numbers? We needed to make a sustainable business that would pay all the bills and provide an income for myself? No. Would I recommend pursuing a business venture with no previous experience in the very volatile and unforgiving world of restaurant operations? Well, if you're smart, I would trust that you can answer this question with some degree of confidence. And at the same time, being an entrepreneur is a balancing act of keeping your emotions, your gut instincts, and sensibilities in check. Because as much as you want to come from a good place with all your intentions, the bottom line always prevails and hopefully you have enough sense to make the proper choices before you run out of money. Now, the book also goes into some golden rules that I've often put into practice in my own work. Classic strategies like one-upmanship, utilizing social media to create buzz, and providing value are great tips anyone can benefit from. All these nuggets of information are provided with the assumption that the reader has very limited resources and that all of this priceless knowledge and experience can be obtained for practically nothing. For example, there is an exercise that encourages the reader to go to the best fast food place in the neighborhood and order something simple like a double cheeseburger and fries. The author then asks the reader to think about how satisfying that meal was and how that experience compares to fancier food that's 10 times the price. Then, the reader is challenged with going to the fancy restaurant and see what others are eating and trying that. And from there, the question is if fancy restaurants can make a dish using expensive ingredients, can you still make a dish that's just as good using cheap ingredients prepared with consummate skill? 
despite the tongue-in-cheek impressions that Mission Street Food gives, there's a lot of great wisdom that can be gained and applied as you go about your journey. The fact that this is one of those came-from-the-bottom stories is one thing, but the practical advice that backs it up makes Mission Street Food's story that much more impactful to someone that is in the same shoes. So the second book I'd like to talk about is... And you've probably, this is probably one of your favorite books too, maybe, maybe not, is Momofuku by David Chang and Peter Meehan. I'd also like to note that during this episode, the titles I talk about are memoirs as much as they are a collection of recipes, which makes for a good cookbook. Because, you know, a good cookbook to me not only shares recipes, but also provides, you know, context from the mind of the person that created them. Maybe they're nostalgic dishes inspired from childhood, or in the case of Momofuku, the recipes document the journey that that he took through his career. Would it be safe to say that Momofuku fueled the ramen boom in the West, much like Roy Choi's Kogi truck pioneered the food truck craze? You could say yes. You could Google if you want to. Uh, the fact of the matter is that David Chang is a master of interpretation. In this case, he was obsessed with ramen from a very early point in his life and through, you know, just hard work, drive, tenacity, created this bowl of ramen that encompassed everything that ramen was, which was like an honest, humble, satisfying, fast food, but reflected all of the qualities he, he wanted to instill that was distinctly him like Benton's bacon for the dashi. Now, David Chang has said before in his podcast that he doesn't consider himself to be talented. Now, in fact, I think the term, I think the term can be perceived as insulting to someone who just works hard. He said, though, he's not the most talented chef. He knows that he will outwork anyone. And that's, it's that extreme dedication to hard work that makes things happen. And that, that, you know, this is why he has this success he has today. It was mentioned in the Mission Street Food book that a great dish can be created with cheap ingredients prepared with skill. Now, Momofuku pretty much proves the point with the collection of recipes that are contained. Um, It was in these now dog-eared pages that I learned to make ramen, alkaline noodles, and steam bao. It was also from this book that I learned techniques to make the most amazing kimchi jjigae. And as you know, a memorable meal can be just as impactful on one's life as a piece of good advice. Most of all, it smashed the expectation that Asian food was always put in a category of being cheap. And though I love cheap eats like the next guy, it often blows my mind how much work goes into making Chinese food while it's being sold at a price that rarely reflects the amount of effort that goes into preparing it. And that's a great topic for a future episode. I consider my cooking to be very, you know, demographic, I guess. I I love fast casual because I want to be in a community where I can see my guests more than once every special occasion or date night. I also believe that this industry is flawed, especially in regards to how we value our product and how it always struggles to meet the expectations of some diners that uh, big portion and low prices rule over quality ingredients and skillfully prepared food. I post in local Facebook uh, foodie groups often because as a chef, I want to know what's going on in the in the local dining culture. Now, a tip, if you run a restaurant, you should join these groups as well so you can get valuable info on how these diners behave in your city. 
Now, a lot of the reviews can be pretty fluffy, and there are a lot that write overinflated, you know, reviews of places because they consider themselves to be food critics. But I guarantee you that once you can separate the grain from the chaff, there is some valuable insight you can gain from it all. Are diner expectations realistic when it comes to uh, what people perceive as a good experience? It really depends on a lot of factors. And once you get used to reading what people post, you can start to get a good thorough understanding of the specifics in your community. I was having a discussion with another chef friend a couple nights ago about Filipino food and how it needs to be blowing up right now. And naturally, we talked about what kinds of things that, you know, we could do to dishes. We asked about that, you know, without compromising the essence of our culture to provide a satisfying dining experience that would be craveable and irresistible. And she simply answered, you need to David Chang it. Ivan Ramen by Ivan Orkin and Chris Ying. Ramen was one of those dishes that I'd always put on a pedestal. And as a diner, it was always such a delight to dig into an artfully constructed bowl. It was so elegantly presented and at the same time, just so simple. So you have these great toothsome hearty noodles, tender pork belly chashu, and plenty of fresh chopped scallions brought together with this flavor bomb of umami rich broth and can't forget that egg and since watching Tom Popol I've always considered the process of making ramen to be the work of an artisan a shokunin or the craftsmen that dedicate their entire existence to making one thing I pictured these you know these people tirelessly hunting for that ever elusive perfect bowl in a lot of cases when you watch Japanese ramen chef that is you know that's the case and as far as memoirs go Ivan Orkin has a story that truly inspires quote a screw-up white kid from New York nothing about him screaming born for greatness succeeds wildly as a chef in Tokyo and that's the great thing about being a cook you can come from any walk of life and to most you could be nobody special but you know, you get your ass in a kitchen with a team of your best ride-or-die crew and nothing can stop you. You're on top of the world, doing something you're good at and you're genuinely proud of, fueled by adrenaline, coffee, gas station energy drinks, and cigarettes. This book is all about challenging your comfort zone again and again, whether by choice or by playing the cards that life deals you. Ivan's story reflects you know, an honest account of what one can achieve through triumph, failure, loss. And it's refreshing to know that someone can write about being vulnerable and uncertain. And I can relate to how doing amazing things can be hampered or trying to do amazing things can be hampered just by being human. Now, as for these recipes, I can honestly say that this book was the most anticipated book since Momofuku. And you know, David Chang's recipes started me on this crazy obsessive world of ramen, but Ivan Ramen takes that obsession to the next level. And on top of that, presents all of the fruits of his labor, every component in this awesome book. Furthermore, I'd like to say that Ivan Orkin's signature ramen is a shio-based ramen. And it's probably one of the most challenging broths to make and highly underrated. 
As the West is deep in the Kodawari ramen craze, the preferred broth that I typically see is tonkotsu, which is that super rich in porcine soup, heavily laden with hours of emulsified pork and fat flavor. And in contrast, shio broth is often chicken-based and seasoned with tare and salt. This clear and unassuming soup, when done well, is amazing, it's flavorful, it's complex. The ingredients, therefore, have to be the best since there is no hiding in a broth like this one. So my next book is Asian American, Proudly Inauthentic Recipes from the Philippines to Brooklyn by Dale Talde and J.J. Good. Now, Dale Talde caught my attention fairly recently via his appearances on Top Chef and in depth in, his, in this cookbook. Um, as a matter of fact, it was a time when I started seeing all these Filipino chefs blowing up like Alvin Kailan, Sheldon Simeon, Tom Kunanan. Talde's dishes are bold, to say the least. And proudly inauthentic is a phrase that I really admire and I have used on a few of my own dishes. And as we talked about before in previous titles, a great cookbook is much more than just recipes, no matter how bold or fun they are. And his approach is influenced by his childhood in Chicago, growing up eating Filipino food in addition to the many different cuisines in the city. So this early appreciation for diversity fueled his passion for cooking as he honed his skills at the CIA. Now, some of the signature dishes that he has include like Korean fried chicken, kimchi yogurt sauce, you know, pretzel pork and chive dumplings, tahini mustard, bacon pad thai, halo halo with Captain Crunch, char siu ribs with kimchi slaw. Now, these dishes demonstrate an ability to mix and match ingredients and techniques from different cultures and cuisines, creating something original and exciting, which most people would probably label as fusion, which is a term that I've come to kind of despise. Now, the memoir of this book, Chef Talde, is a prime example of how diversity in such a relatively small area like Chicago can evolve cuisine in ways that just can't be avoided. And this is just evolution of cuisine. It's not fusion, no matter how intended it is or not. You know, the ingredients are there, and if they work well together, then it's just cooking. It doesn't need a label or buzzword to set it apart from other food. It's original. And it's simply what happens when groups of people live together, work together, trade, marry, have kids, you know. Um, Talde's approach to cooking is not bound by tradition or authenticity, but rather by, you know, imagination, taste. And it's this, it's just like this absurdity of fusion. The idea of authenticity is repeatedly challenged with recipes like you know, bacon pad thai or buttered toast ramen. It's the freedom to just cook good food that's so refreshing to me. And I understand that nothing beats a good banh mi, don't get me wrong, especially in the morning when your favorite shop is bustling with those aunties slicing baguettes while deep in their morning banter. And how that banh mi is so good with that pate and the aioli and that signature dash of Maggie that brings all those components together in that first crispy bite that cuts the roof of your mouth with the crackly crust. But who says that bun mi wouldn't be just as tasty with fried spam or lemongrass chicken with a curry laksa broth for dipping? So back in 2009, before I even entertained the thought of making ramen, the whole of Japanese food was a beautiful and elusive mystery to me. Though I ate a lot of it at restaurants and sushi bars and enjoyed it, 
immensely as I do today. The fact was that everyday home-cooked Japanese meals look just as beautiful. Unlike home-cooked food in Western meals, which consisted of the trifecta with the meat, carb, and veg all arranged in that predictable plating arrangement, there was something about Japanese home cooking that appealed to me, be it the colors, the thoughtful placement of different components, the variety, and just like the care that took into making this plate of food so good looking. Um, So you can imagine my surprise when I learned how simple it is to actually do. And while on a random trip to the bookstore, I found this book and it was simply titled, Let's Cook Japanese Food, Everyday Recipes for Home Cooking by Amy Kaneko. And it was this book that that I can credit to me learning how to cook Japanese food and fueled, you know, this voracious curiosity to learn more, which led to all the other books. Um, it was in these pages where I learned how to prepare proteins and cut veg the Japanese way, always being thoughtful of how ingredients would look when finished. And it was also in this book where, you know, I have soy sauce stained pages revealing how many times I cooked her mapo tofu, nikujaga, tonjiru. And it was the results of these tasty meals that prompted me to share my new cooking techniques in the form of a vlog that was soon called The Aimless Cook. So since that time, I've been lucky to meet people that taught me their Japanese cooking tips and techniques at home and at the restaurant where I worked at at the time. And it was this, you know, attention to detail and love that went into the cooking that spoke to me and changed the way that I cooked forever. So I know there are a vast galaxy of cookbooks out there that are both amazing and impactful, many of which I just didn't have time to mention, but maybe I will on future episodes. But I simply can't leave out one of my favorite life-changing reads, even though it's not technically a cookbook. Now, if you were thinking like me, it's Lucky Peach, then I know we can be friends. So if you're not familiar with Lucky Peach... The, it was a quarterly food magazine that ran from 2011 to 2017, and it was founded by David Chang and Peter Meehan, and featured a mix of travelogue, essays, art, photography, and recipes exploring the world of food culture. It featured regular chef collabs, interviews, observations from some of the most popular and influential personalities in food. It was issue number one, in fact, that taught me how to make alkaline noodles. And so the other cool thing was that the overall style of Lucky Peach screamed like it was a zine, but with all of the things that you'd expect from a polished magazine, like covers or having all the pages. In all seriousness, though, it was a glimpse at a world that the Bon Appetits and Food and Wines just didn't offer and prompted other great magazines and journals of this nature, like the Cleaver Quarterly. By the way, if you love Chinese food and you haven't read The Cleaver Quarterly, please do so immediately. So in this episode, I talked about five cookbooks that showcase not only the richness and variety of the cuisines featured, but the lives and adventures of the chefs that wrote them. And I hope that you enjoyed listening to this podcast. And if there are any books or publications out there that have inspired you, I'd love to hear about them. You can reach me on Instagram at The Aimless Cook or on our Facebook page. And if you want to check out these cookbooks, you can find the links in the show notes. So thanks for listening to The Aimless Cook Podcast. My name is Jade Coro. Be kind to one another and I'll see you on the next one. Peace. Peace.